Hello, and welcome to Global Data Pod, JP Morgan's podcast on all things relevant for the global economic outlook. And I'm Bruce Kasman, Chief Economist at JP Morgan, and joining me today is David Mackey, Senior European Economist. And we're going to talk about living with COVID 19, and specifically a piece that David produced this week, which talks about the the basically the transition from a pandemic to an endemic equilibrium on COVID. Now that is a pretty loaded uh, statement, David. So why don't you talk us through what you're thinking about as this transition to living with COVID-19 means actually? In terms of the sort of basic epidemiology, um, what we've discovered is that the virus-free equilibrium isn't within reach. We can't really eradicate SARS-CoV-2. So we've said got to basically learn to live with it. And I think Omicron basically is a variant that has the kind of properties that we can live with it in the sense that um, it may be very transmissible, but it's not very virulent, certainly not for people that have been recently vaccinated. So essentially, the endemic steady state is a situation where there will be ebb and flow of infections as people acquire immunity and then that immunity then fades. So there will be oscillations in infections. Um, they will probably be on a sort of annual kind of basis, but the world can live without restrictions. So it does become a bit like influenza, um, or sort of slightly worse version of influenza. Now, the one country in the world that isn't entering the endemic steady state, I mean, basically most of the world is. Could I just stop you there? I know we're going to go talk about China in a second, and, and obviously yeah. that's important, but how similar is the situation across most of the rest of the world in terms of entering that stage. Obviously, vaccination rates are reasonably high everywhere, but there's still quite a bit of differentiation. There's still quite a differentiation in terms of the uh, capacity of healthcare systems. So how, how uniform is your, your thinking on, on this um, outside of China? Well, I think because Omicron is so highly transmissible, I think acquired immunity from infections and recovery has basically become, I think, a very important force holding down the reproduction number and therefore infection. So I think that the issue about some countries may have a bit more, a few more people vaccinated than others. I don't think that's really the crucial thing. I, just before this call, I just went through our database and pretty much everybody in the world now has got a, an effective reproduction number of close to one and have done for a while now, which means that essentially the situation is stable. And so regardless of differences in vaccination rates, um, acquired immunity is the additional um, force weighing down on reproduction numbers, keeping things stable. So I think that the, I, don't, I think differences in vaccinations aren't quite as important as they were pre-Omicron. Now, in that context, um... And again, I want to talk about China, but I want to just before we get there, talk about what this means. There's still pretty large deviations in terms of country performance relative to their pre-crisis path. Um, you know, in some some countries like the U.S. are pretty close to getting back to their pre-crisis path, and other countries have gaps of multiple percentage points of GDP. Um, is the natural course of getting to an endemic mean that those gaps should should narrow? and that those countries that are further behind should be catching up. I mean, there's a whole bunch of other variables, so let's not get too much into the, um, you know, all of the issues here, but is there just generally 
a transition from pandemic to endemic means that um, there should be a greater convergence in performance as the countries further behind uh, catch up. And I think that would be a reasonable view to have. I think the the challenge that we've got is as as we look at these countries, so many where where you've still got relatively large declines, shortfalls in GDP relative to a, a sort of pre-pandemic trend, where the US there's very little gap now, whereas in the Euro area there's a three percent gap in the UK there's a 4% gap. The problem with thinking about those gaps closing on a forward-looking basis is that these economies are now pretty much back to full employment or they've gone through full employment. So it only, the only way to close that gap is to have above potential growth going forward. And that just seems a bit unlikely given where labour markets are and given where inflation is. So there's okay. So that's in now. I want to get it. I want. I, I want to get into this topic about inflation and the sustainability of cycles. But I want to, before we do that, uh, complete the circle on on COVID with China. But let's just sort of pause on this thought that what you're saying is that there's some kind of a, a disruptive impact that has happened as a result of COVID on the supply side that is going to prevent. Um, Full normalization in um, across the world in um, levels of GDP to pre-crisis positions. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So that's where we stand, looking at the rest of the world. And I want to again come back to that. But now we're in a world in which it looks like um, other countries are poised towards moving on this endemic path but China is in a very different position. And let's describe those differences. Well, I come back to a sort of fundamental truth in epidemiology, which is that there's only two ways to control infections in a sort of respiratory illness like COVID, either lockdowns, limiting people's mobility and mixing, or immunity. China is effectively choosing the first way, whilst the rest of the world is choosing the second way. I mean, it's not quite... 100% 100% one thing or the other, because the, the you know, Chinese population has been vaccinated a lot, and that is acting in some ways to add immunity into the system. But due to the reduced efficacy of the Chinese vaccines, it's not as powerful it is, as it is in the rest of the world. So basically, the problem that China's got is that you can control infections using lockdowns, but the downward pressure on infections only lasts whilst the lockdown's in place. When you take the lockdown away, unless you've literally eradicated the virus completely, it'll just come back and you'll have to just have another lockdown. Now, the contrast with acquiring immunity by allowing infections to run through the population is that immunity gives you protection against infection for a longer period. I mean, we know that it's not indefinite because immunity fades, but it's a much longer period than a lockdown. So I think the problem that China's got is that they are only, so we look at somewhere like Shanghai at the moment, we sort of see the infections have come down dramatically. That's only because Shanghai has been locked down for weeks. The risk of course, is that once that lockdown is eased, infections will just come back. And I think that that means that, um, whereas you will be having an endemic situation in the rest of the world where acquired immunity will ebb and flow and immunity protection will ebb and flow. In China, the only way you can control this in the near term is through having lockdowns that ebb and flow. Now, you're saying that this would be the case given their, the legacy of the zero 
tolerance policy, even if they were able to um, vaccinate their populations um, with the, the same ones that are being used uh, across the rest of the world? No, I mean, I think when you think about what's the sort of exit, potential exit path for China, I think doing a mass vaccination program with an effective mRNA vaccine is, is obviously the way ahead. I mean, that's essentially how the rest of the world transit. When, when we think about the rest of the world, essentially in the first wave of COVID, when there was no immunity and no vaccinations, we all had to live with lockdowns. As immunity built in the population and as vaccines came along, then they, they started doing the heavy lifting of controlling infections relative to lockdowns. So lockdowns, subsequent lockdowns were much less of a problem as it acquired immunity and vaccinations took off. So I think the way for China going forward is that they really, I think, I think the only way that they can have an exit path is to have a mass uh, mRNA vaccine program, but basically gets them to where the rest of the world is. And then they can, there'll still be episodic waves of infection in the same way that there is elsewhere. But the pressure on the hospitalization and healthcare system will be much, much reduced because the immunity protection against severe illness is more powerful and lasts longer than the immunity protection against infection. I mean, are you the difference between the effectiveness of the BioNTech? And the Sinovac um, is still obviously open for debate, but are we saying that those differences are just large enough to prevent them from being able to open up and allow for that endemic equilibrium to take hold now? Because the differences in some of the studies suggest that you know the differences in hospitalization rates might be uh, in terms of improvements of something on ten percent less in Sinovac. Is that is that what you're saying? Is that enough to create a hugely different um, set of healthcare outcomes. Well, I think you've got you've got two issues with the Chinese vaccines. One is they've got they seem to have a much lower efficacy against infection, and that's maybe 20, 30 points lower. And you're right, in terms of hospitalization given infection, they might be 10 or 15 or 20 points lower. It seems that the combination of those two means that you have much the risk of much higher infections if you abandon the zero COVID policy and more of those infections would need to be hospitalized. I think the other issue that China's got is that the vaccination rates whilst in the population as a whole are very high amongst the older population they're much much lower. So, so I let's, think that let's ask this question is there a way for China to get through this in the next six or nine months without becoming an important uh magnified drag on global growth. You know, we just took our forecast this week for the second quarter into negative territory on a sequential basis, uh, but we still have a pretty decent rebound in the second half of the year. Uh, if China is continuing to, to manage COVID the way it is now, is there, um, is there a significant downside risk that we're just too optimistic on second half growth? Well, that, I personally would think so, because I mean, you know, people may come up with ideas about how to create some sort of exit path for China, but I can't think of one other than, I mean, there's two that make sense to me. One is a mass vaccination program with a mRNA vaccine that's as effective as the, as the ones being used in other parts of the world, or 
massive availability of these oral antivirals, which basically, both of those essentially break the link between infections and hospitalizations. But you would have to vaccinate, you know, 50% or more of the population, or you'd have to have oral antivirals available to a similar number of a uh, huge number of people. And it strikes me that these are very challenging things to do in the near term. So I think the, 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 the problem you've got is that the only way that China stops the healthcare system being overwhelmed is for them to basically continue with the zero COVID policy until they've built up enough of a stock of mRNA vaccines and, and or oral antivirals. So I don't see how we get out of this quickly, even if even if the Chinese government decided they wanted to abandon it, I don't think it's actually sort of epidemiologically feasible until you've put in place one or other or both of these kind of mechanisms. So China is still going to be a, a problem and still a threat from a global point of view, not, not, not least of which because the Chinese economy is a big part of the global economy, but obviously through its linkages to the rest of the world. Uh, and one of the things we've written about this week is how those linkages are pretty powerful in, in the manufacturing sector. And that's certainly one of the issues we're tracking in an environment in which China, we think, um, as we look towards next week's release of the April data is going to show a really big drop. And the PMIs out, outside of China so far have held up pretty well uh, through the month of April. So there's an interesting tension building there. Um, on the macro side, I want to turn to another issue. Before we get, I, I do want to talk about this issue you raised, but I kind of put to the side about, about labor markets and inflation. But um, talk to me about an endemic as we move towards next winter. Um, and we think about the US, Western Europe in the mode that you're describing. Um, isn't there still going to be a pretty significant drag on growth just from the fact that even if there's not a huge amount of um, mortality or people having to go to the hospital, uh, COVID does get people sick. There still will be a significant amount of people infected, uh, even in an Omicron way variant type type world. Uh, could that have a, a, a decent negative impact on global growth as we look at the latter part of the year and into early 2023? I think that's, that is an important issue. I mean, I think there's quite a powerful seasonal with Omicron. And I think we're certainly for the Northern Hemisphere, we're entering a period when I think just naturally from a seasonal point of view, infections would be low anyway. I think that in order to control, I mean, next autumn is obviously the, the next kind of crunch point. I think in order to control the situation, we're going to have to have annual autumnal boosters that basically increase people's protection against infection and severe illness. But as you said, I mean, when I was writing this report, I actually came down with an Omicron infection and it only lasted about a week, but it was, it was kind of unpleasant. I mean, I, you know, I wasn't sort of, I was only in my bed for a couple of days, but you know, it was unpleasant. So I think you know, Omicron may be less deadly than previous variants, but it can still be unpleasant. I think you're right that there will be issues about labor supply as you go through the autumn with people getting sick they're not, you know, they're not, the mortality rates are going to be nothing like as high as it was in earlier waves, and the pressure on the healthcare system will not be like it was in earlier waves. But people may need to take more time off work, and that will be one of the longer-term consequences of living in the endemic steady state. I mean, the endemic steady state may mean that we can live 
live with the virus with very minimal restrictions, but there will still be some macro consequences of that. So um, let's turn to the topic that we kind of put to the side for a minute, which is that an endemic equilibrium by itself could suggest uh, a convergence back to more um, in normal levels of GDP, pre-pandemic levels of GDP, but we're not there yet. And your view is we're probably not going to get there. Um, and the argument for that um, and, and for convergence among countries that have been uh, more depressed is that everybody has tight labor markets and therefore uh, there's limits on how far that healing and normalization can go. I guess without getting deeply into the question of why have labor markets been so uh, disrupted, I guess the the question you know we're we're having to face is how much of a problem is tight labor markets for for the inflation outlook and and in that let me just emphasize that certainly um, if you look back over the last year, if you look at why inflation is at eight percent in the u s why is it's over seven percent in the uh, uh, in the euro area and why it's close to 7% globally, um, it's hard to argue that labor markets have been the key driver or even a material driver of, of that inflation move up. So uh, why do you think inflation is um, a significant constraint here going forward? The labor well, market think, tightness, excuse me, not inflation. Well, I think one of the things that you highlighted earlier in the year is this idea of a change in the inflation regime, which I think is the only way to understand what's going on, particularly in terms of the labour market and wages. You, I think labour markets are tight. Um, you know, unemployment rates are probably through the natural rate in certainly in many developed market economies. But unless you think the Phillips curve is virtually vertical, that, that can't really explain where wage growth has been. So I think that this idea that um, you've spoken about on a number of occasions about this, this idea that even though the Phillips curve may have gone a bit steeper, even though the um, natural rate of unemployment may have risen, it's really about inflation persistence, which is the real problem. And we've got used to two or three decades where through some combination of factors you know shocks to the inflation rate were fairly small and so persistence was never really an issue whereas now we've got to a situation where the shock from omicron uh, sorry the shock from covid to inflation was very large and that seems to have made inflation much more relevant for price and wage setters um and i think that uh one way of thinking about that is that there's a sort of element of short-term inflation expectations and longer-term inflation expectations. So longer-term inflation expectations still remain well anchored, but in some sense, shorter-term expect inflation expectations over a two or three-year horizon have risen, and they're going to make this cost shock reverberate in the inflation system for longer than we would have gotten used to. Let me let me actually jump in there and 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 the way I've been describing it is salience is that yeah. once inflation becomes embedded in uh, people's expectations and that can happen even in short term expectations and that can happen even if they're not uh, uh, challenging the credibility of central banks 
in the more medium term, that begins to seep into the wage and price setting uh, structure. Uh, and I think from the perspective of uh, thinking about it um, from central banks in the cycle, one of the ways I've been kind of talking about this is that there's a, um, there's a certain level of labor cost pressures, which you need to kind of consider as, as, as uh, providing balance for the economy. So for example, in the United States, uh, if you look at where unit labor costs are growing right now, which is wage growth plus productivity, um, it's growing over 4% um, in the last uh, four quarters. Uh, and if we kind of think about a world in which that is um, going to persist, um, then that's not sustainable with the Fed hitting its inflation target um, because that would mean that margins would be compressed significantly. If we have 4% unit labor cost growth and 2% inflation, then margins would come under pressure. And that historically has not been um, an environment in which expansions have been able to con continue for very long. But on the other side, if companies have the pricing power uh, to stabilize margins or even close to stabilizing margins, that would involve pricing growing at probably a 3% or higher pace, in which case uh, that would not be acceptable, sustainable for the Fed. So in the sense of what we're describing here of a salient inflation um, picture and tight labor markets, there is a problem that uh, you're starting to build up an underlying cost of labor um, that's neither sustainable if the Fed hits its inflation target, um, nor is it sustainable if companies are able to maintain uh, significant pricing power. Uh, there is probably outcomes in the middle there where labor cost pressures come off somewhat, uh, inflation comes down, um, and the Fed accepts it to be somewhat above the 2% uh, level. Uh, but those are reasonably narrow windows, which do look um, somewhat difficult to achieve given what's been happening now and given that process that we've just discussed. Let me um, close this, David, with you know the, the known unknown. You're, you're talking through this whole conversation in a world in which we think we understand where COVID is going. Um, how confident are you that this idea that um, we're going to have an infectious uh, disease here that's going to remain pretty easy to get, but isn't going to do uh, that much damage. How confident is that, that that's, that's a stable uh, outcome here and we don't have to worry about some new variant coming around here that, that really does disrupt this apple cart? Well, I think that is a, a big unknown. I mean, I think that uh, there's no particular, I mean, variants are basically genetic mutations in a sort of Darwinian way, and we can't really predict what they'll be like. So I think that you know, there is a risk that there's a, a more malign variant that comes along. Um, but you know, anybody's guess is, uh, is, is, is the relevant on that one. I mean, one thing I would say, I mean, the final section of the report that I published does highlight um, some research that was published recently in um, Nature magazine, where basically they talk about a whole range of things that's likely to increase um, the risk of zoonotic, zoonotic um, 
pathogens, which is basically pathogens that jump from animal hosts to human hosts. And they've got a very, and this is basically due to climate change, urbanization, deforestation, uh, changes in land use, which basically mean that mammal species that were once separate move into habitats that are closer together. And that's when you get this opportunity for viruses to jump around. So there's a very striking quote they give, around 10,000 viral species have the capacity to infect human beings, but at present the vast majority are circulating silently in wild mammals. However, climate and land use change will produce novel opportunities for viral sharing among previously geographically isolated species of wildlife. So, I mean, I think there's a couple of issues here. One is the question of will SARS-CoV-2 itself mutate in an adverse way? But I think that if you think about really major respiratory pathogen epidemics, you know, we, we had a hundred year gap between the Spanish flu epidemic and COVID-19. I think as we look forward and we consider some of the things highlighted by this recent research, I don't think we're going to have to wait a hundred years for the next global pandemic of a respiratory pathogen. So I think that, um, you know, there's an issue about SARS-CoV-2 itself mutating, but there's also an issue that the world is changing in a way that's going to make these things more common on a sort of, um, you know, medium-term perspective. Well, that's a bright note to end on. <laughs> <laughs> I think we will end there, unfortunately. Um, so um, the positives here, of course, are that we can foresee an endemic um, equilibrium in which COVID is less of an impact on growth. Um, China, of course, is a major uh, problem as we, as we make that transition. And the other problem is that the disruptions and otherwise um, you know, reasonably good recovery we've gotten have left us with very tight labor markets, which raises the question of whether you can actually sustain the more complete uh, recovery uh, to normalizing from the, the COVID shock. So with those, those thoughts in mind, we'll end there. Thanks a lot, David. And uh, thanks everybody for listening and hope we can continue a conversation on uh, Global Data Pod next time. Thank you. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan Research reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 2022 JP Morgan Chase and Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded in May, 2022.